This morning we're turning in our Bibles to John chapter 12. You'll notice we're jumping right to the middle of John 12, and if you haven't been here ever, or you have been new in the last couple of months, as many of you are, you might not know why we're picking it up in the middle of John. Here's why. I was preaching, we have been preaching a series of sermons on John previous to this that go back into the old year, and now we're picking up in John in January again. And if you kind of wonder where we're headed, I'll tell you, I intend to continue going through John for a good share of 2024. And if you wonder if I ever listen to your feedback, I do. And I've probably got more questions about when are we turning to John than any other series that I've preached. And so as you're longing to hear, I'm longing to explain it to you. Because these are incredible words an incredible gospel that God has given us through his servant John. I want to give you the broad picture before we read these verses. You might know that there are four gospels, and each one of them gives his own perspective, true perspective, on the life of Jesus. You might ask, what is John's unique contribution? What does his voice add? It's this. John is meant to ask, answer the question, why should I believe in Jesus? Why is this Jesus compelling Not just is he true, but why is he compelling? Why should I want to follow him? And that's again why we turn to the Gospel of John this morning. Chapter 12, I'll be reading verses 20 through 50, but I'll be focusing on the early verses, verses 23 through 26. Hear the word of God. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.' Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, uh, and heard it said that it had thundered, Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them, uh, of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the Word of God. You may have had to flip the page in your Bibles as I was reading. Again, I'm just noting to you that those verses 20 through 26 are the ones I'll focus on this morning. Many of you are aware that last year Tim Keller died, and before he died, he wrote a very powerful book, perhaps one of his best in my estimation, about the idols of our time. You might want to guess for a moment, what are the idols of our time? That is, those things that we serve that would take the place of God. Keller said there are actually three of them. The first is most obvious, money. We want to serve money. If you remember a movie called Wall Street, I want money, more and more money, get me more money. The second is probably also obvious to you, sex. We live in a culture where what is most private is made public, and what is most public is made private, makes no sense at all, and that is part of the idolatry. The third might really surprise you. In fact, I would say the first two are built upon the third. The third is power. The idols of our time are money, sex, and power. And the third, the desire for power, for me to do what I want, and you have to respond, you have no choice, that power often drives the other two. I'm going to make this a bit personal for a second. When I'd been through seminary and then seven years of ministry, I decided to go to law school. Some of you have asked me about that experience. I'll tell you now why I did it. There were a number of reasons. Some of them were very sinful. But here's one that factored in. It was one of the most powerful. It was because I saw a lot of things happening in our culture that I didn't like. And as much as I preached and visited the old folks in our congregation, I didn't seem to have much ability to affect real and wide change. And so I came to the conclusion, the place in which I can do maximum for the Lord was not in pastoral ministry. It was by going to law school and following wherever the Lord would lead to go into a place of significant influence. Because that's where things really mattered, at least that's what I said in my mind. To bring this back to Keller's book, it's a very simple thing. What was I looking for? I was looking for power. 
And that is often what we think will really bring about what we want in this world. If I only have more power, we can bring to pass, I can bring to pass, what should finally happen. Many of our frustrations come from the fact we lack the power we believe we ought to have. Now that's a very long introduction to tell you this simple truth. This account this morning from these words, the first part of our reading from John chapter 12, tell us, listen to this, about a different dynamic in the kingdom of Christ. To put it in a phrase, we're looking for power. We're looking for control. We want to bring to pass what seems right to us. And instead of Jesus offering us power, Jesus instead gives us glory. Now, you might think to yourself, Pastor, those are different categories, apples and oranges. If we're looking for power, how does glory answer that question? I want to show you this morning from verses 23 through 26. But in order to do that, I need to connect you to where we were previously in John chapter 12. One of the most interesting parts of the passage I read a few moments ago is that in verse 20, we read that it is Greeks who are coming to Jesus and his disciples. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were Greeks. You might not remember even what the feast was. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 12, you will notice that Jesus has just gone through what we call the triumphal entry. And this happened at one of the great feasts of ancient Israel, where every one of the males in Israel were required to go up to Jerusalem. And in the middle of that festival, Jesus enters Jerusalem and the crowds cry, here comes the one that God has promised would give us deliverance. Here's the one who will bring us the power we lack. In fact, in verse 19, right before we started reading, one of the Jews say, says, hey, look, the whole world is going after Jesus. As if to say there is a significant shift. Jews, and now we're watching Gentiles follow Jesus as well. And that sets us up perfectly for what happens in verses 20 through 26. There are some who see the way of the kingdom as they watch Jesus and they want to know how does this work. Let me explain. Verse 20 says specifically, these Greeks came to Philip to ask him if they could go and see Jesus. Why did they come to Philip? Well, we're told in the text because Philip was from Bethsaida, almost certainly a Greek, at least someone who spoke Greek, not a Greek, but one who spoke Greek. So they came to him as one who was from a Greek-speaking place because if there was anyone who would give them access to Jesus, it was somebody like Philip. And the request is very simple on the face of it, and that is, show us Jesus. Give us access to him. Let's go to Jesus. We want to see him. And if you connect this passage with the previous one, it's not difficult to understand why that would be. They're not there to ask Jesus about his miracles or his teachings in John chapter 10 or John 8 or John 6. They are here to see Jesus because of what they have seen in the previous section. In fact, the writer John seems to intentionally connect this story with the last. Jesus entering Jerusalem and proclaimed as the king of Israel. John connects these stories because he wants us to see the connection. 
In fact, I don't think it's a stretch at all for me to say that this passage is meant to be a commentary on the previous one. Jesus entering into Jerusalem. What does that mean? John says, well, I've got you. Look at what comes after. So what did these Greeks see when Jesus entered Jerusalem? They saw the nation of Israel who believed Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah was coming. They used the words of the Old Testament to welcome Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That's right. Those were the right words to use. But they were wrong about something very fundamental. There's a reason why they say at the end of their song of praise, even the king of Israel. Because at this point in their history, 150 years of history had passed from a significant date that informs what they do when Jesus enters Jerusalem. For 150 years, these Jews had cut down palm branches Because these palm branches connected their history as a people to the Maccabean revolts. That revolt was led by Simon Maccabeus as he drove the Syrians out of the temple as they were desecrating the temple. And Simon himself was welcomed back in Jerusalem by these crowds with songs, praises, and palm branches. Later, when Simon's brother rededicated the temple, after it had been defiled by the Syrians, palm branches were again waved by the Israelites. The waving of palm branches was a symbol of victory. Perhaps you remember this, maybe you won't. It might just make me sound old. But my Minnesota Twins won the World Series twice, 1987 and 1991. In both instances, they passed out what were known as Homer hankies. And in victory, you grabbed the Homer hanky and swung it. Now you watch it on TV and you go like, what in the world? But it was a sign of victory. We're winning. That's what the Jews were doing. We're winning. Our Savior has come. The waving of these palm branches is emphasized by two further realities. These were Jews who had been humbled by their foreign rulers time and time again. Jesus' own disciples, either five or six of them, depending on how you count them, including two of Jesus' brothers, had Maccabean names that likely remembered what happened 150 years before. There's even evidence at the point at which this was happening in John that there were Jewish coins that had been struck with an image of a palm tree with the inscription that says, because of the redemption of the Jews, Jesus is entering a politically charged climate where the Jews are saying our Savior has come. Not like we think of Christmas. No, this is national freedom that they are after. They see this Jesus is the one who's going to restore their hope. And now these Greeks want to see Jesus. You see why? Because the Greeks want to ask Jesus, who really are you? What are you going to do for the Jewish nation? Are you the hope of political freedom? 
Are you the next Judas Maccabeus, only you're finally going to succeed? Is now the time that Israel will be restored to world dominance like David and Solomon? Is that what you're going to do, Jesus? Jesus, when is your power going to show up? When are you finally going to use the power that we see when you open the eyes of the blind and you raise Lazarus from the death just a few chapters before, when, Jesus, are you going to use that power for something that finally matters? That's what they're asking. If I can put it more colloquially, Jesus, when are you going to stop sort of playing around in the minor things? When are you finally going to use that power to restore us as a nation? Man, I felt like I belabored that a little bit, but I've done that for a reason. Because these are the kind of questions that have been asked for many years, for a long time, by Christians as well. How does what is right come to pass in this world? How is this all going to be made right? Even if we don't ask that question explicitly, it's one that kind of nags at our minds. Let me give you one great example. Earlier this year, in January, I read an article about our past president, Barack Obama. He was interviewed by a magazine about some massive changes, and this is why I was reading the article, that had happened in my home state of Minnesota. The state legislature and the governorship are both held by the same party. And so at the beginning of their legislative session, the party in power put out a wish list of 20 things that they wanted to do. If we could have like the dream session, what would this be like? And Barack Obama was interviewed because he said they accomplished 19 or 20, probably 19 and a half of their particular wish list. He says, isn't it amazing? And then he used this phrase that he's used before. It's a phrase that I most often attach to our former president. When he was asked, well, how did that happen? He said, well, it's the same thing that's always happened. He said, the right people are in power. Elections have consequences. We have the power to do what we want. Or just let me put it this way. I have the power. You can't stop me. So I'm going to do as I believe right. Now the reason I note that is because I would say to you, even though your priorities might not be those of the state legislature in the state of Minnesota, perhaps one of the most insidious things that happens in our world, and it may also infect us as members of the church, is that we come to think that the problem with what former president said is not is not, first of all, with the assumption he makes, it is with who's in power. In other words, we say to ourselves, oh, but if only the opposite party were in power, everything would be made right. That's where our hope is. We just have to work to get the right people in places of power, or we can apply this in many places in our lives in general. If only I finally get the power that I need, I can make it right. The problem is that I don't have enough power. The right people don't have the power And that struggle is played out not only in legislatures, but in boardrooms and even living rooms. And sometimes between you and your wife laying in bed trying to work out a problem. 
Each one of us wants our way. And the assumption may be as Christians, well, that's right. If only we get enough power, we can make things happen in the way that they should. And now I just want to pause and say, please hear what I'm going to say in light of Christians as members of a society should be very active in it. I've said many times, let me hang the advertisement again. Some of you, the Lord is calling to serve in political office. You should serve there. That's a good thing. It's a noble thing. It is an important thing. Go for it. But don't do it with the assumption that the Greeks sensed in the Jewish people. That is, that if only the right people have the power, everything will be made right in this world. It's not going to happen in politics. It's not going to happen in your business. It's not going to happen in your home. Or if I can put it this way, please, my friend, do not make the palm branch assumptions that what is right will be brought into this world by the force of your power. Some of us this morning are frustrated because we're trying that and it is not working. And what we say to ourselves is, I just don't have enough. Give me more power. Keep giving it to me. If only I finally had enough, then I'd be able to make it right. Jesus is going to challenge that assumption at the deepest level. Or let me put it this way, that's not what Jesus is offering. He is not offering to give us that power. The Jews want it, the Greeks identify it, and Jesus will not give it. So what does Jesus offer instead? Isn't that the question you're wondering? He's not going to offer us what we assume we need. What will he offer instead? Notice what he says in verse 23. His response is that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And if you listen to this passage, I should have noted it before we started. Look how often in the verses I read, the idea of glory comes up. It comes back over and over and over again. I want you to note this if you are not averse to writing in your Bibles. You might want to note that in verse 23, it is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, yes, the hour has come. Previously in chapter 2, verse 4, or in chapter 7, verse 30, he says, my hour has not yet come. So what's happened now? There are two important things to what Jesus is saying in this verse. This hour is a technical term in John. I don't mean it's complicated. It just means something very specific. As I said, it comes up first in chapter 2, verse 4. And then it's repeated in various places in John. It's almost like a drumbeat that if you read John in a large chunk, you'll see this coming up over and over. Jesus heals someone. Jesus brings a tremendous kingdom teaching. And then he'll say, but his hour has not yet come. And you think to yourself, whoa, who's holding the reins back? If the crowds are trying to follow after Jesus, why in the world would the reins be held back? Why doesn't the curtain just be flung open wide and everyone can see Jesus for who he is? The answer is, God has a certain strategy he is using to reveal Christ at just the right time for the maximum glory. And this hour is defined by the time that begins now, 
that the Son of Man will be glorified. This is the introduction to the rest of John, the theme that hangs over the John book from this point hour, uh, from this point onward, we can say to ourselves, now is when Jesus is going to be glorified. Or if that's complicated because it's kind of Christian ease, what does it mean Jesus will be glorified? It means we will see Jesus for who he actually is. There's no hesitation. You see him for who he is. Note four things about this. First, Verse 24 talks about the dying of a seed. That is an analogy. Look in verse 24. Jesus is talking about his own death. But even more, hear this, he's talking about the way of the kingdom. The manner in which his kingdom comes into this world. Jesus uses this analogy in direct opposition to the expression of the people who are waving the palm branches. They were saving, saying, you must have the power so that you can bring into this world what we desire. Jesus is saying, the way I'm going to be glorified, recognized for who I am, is by dying. I'm going to die. For most people, including these people, death is a problem. It's not a solution. David died, Solomon died, and the nation of Israel suffered. Every other king who has ever lived died, including the greatest political rulers of our time. If they had not died, the thinking is they could have continued to live, and then we wouldn't be in such bad circumstances. The Jews argued that, and perhaps we do as well. What the Israelites may have been looking for was a strong, majestic oak tree sort of leader. And what Jesus is offering as a principle of the kingdom in verse 24 is a seed that dies in order for life to occur. This applies specifically to Jesus, the nature of his kingdom. His death is necessary for life to result. He will die in order for the life of his people to thrive. His kingdom comes through his death. The second thing that we are shown in verse 25 And Jesus goes even further. He says this death for life does not only apply to Jesus, it applies to all of us. He intentionally uses parallel phrases when he talks about himself and then he talks about us. In fact, the second parallel phrase is even stronger than the first to emphasize the point Jesus is saying, you must die to yourself. You cannot be within the kingdom of Christ if you are unwilling to die to yourself. If you're clamoring for the power, you will never receive the glory. To make it pretty practical, if you work with the goal that you'll have your ideal life, that finally things will crumble under the weight of your power, if you can finally bring to pass your good life, if you strive for more and more and more, to use the categories of Tim Keller, more money, more sex, more power, these things will finally bring you contentment. Let me tell you tonight, this morning, that at some point you are going to die a frustrated human being. All the money, all the sex, all the power will bring you nothing of which you hope. Some of the most famous people in the world, I remember John D. Rockefeller, who was at the time the billionaire of billionaires in today's money. He died and said, and I have accomplished, you know what he said? I've accomplished nothing. Instead, Jesus says we must give up ourselves to the point even of, he says, hating ourselves 
that is hating the desire to have more and more for myself, to bring things about my own way. And there's only one way that is possible, and this is a subtle but all-important point, so note this, that will only happen if we have someone of greater significance. This is key to Jesus' argument, turning the attention from us and what we have and what we acquire to someone more important. The Christian life is not one of self-negation. Instead, it is seeing that there is someone greater than ourselves, one who has given himself fully for us. He has already become the seed that died that we can live. Therefore, he can enable us to die to ourselves in order to live for him. The third thing I would say to you in verse 26 about this glory is that Jesus tells us he will lead us to die for ourselves so that we can live for him. Jesus is not telling you simply to do it. Jesus is saying, as I walked in Israel and I offered myself, you must give yourself as well. He's talking about a pattern of life. As he gave of himself, we must give. As he walked, we must walk. We must approach life with that beautiful combination of truth and humility. And finally, and this is where it is all headed, at the end of verse 26, Jesus said that will lead us to real glory. And he means that in two regards. First, it will lead us to see the glory, incomparable glory of Jesus. Now I'm going to pause for a moment because I have to tell you something that may sound a little strange. In a couple of weeks, you may not know, but there's a big football game called the Super Bowl. And if things work out well this afternoon, it's even possible a team relatively close to us will play in it. I don't think it's likely, but it could happen. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to go to one of these parties if the Lions play in the Super Bowl? I'm just imagining now. Imagine with me, everybody's going to have their Lions jerseys on. Go Lions. I don't know what we chant, but go Lions, I guess. You ever stop and ask yourself the question why people care so much about sport teams, sport teams and their success? Why does that appeal to us so much? Nobody goes to these parties and says, you know, this is kind of stupid. Maybe there are people who think that, they just don't go to those parties. It is our natural desire to be connected with something that is great and glorious. If I can put it in the most exalted language, that desire is a human desire that God has put in our hearts. That we would want to see something glorious. And short of knowing our God is glorious, Jesus Christ is glorious, we will fill in that hole with all sorts of things. I'm not saying football's all bad or any of that sort. I'm just saying it points us to the natural inclination we have to seek after something which is greater than ourselves and to glory in it. Look how great we are. People say, we won. Truth be told, really what we're longing for is a Savior who's greater than us and a Savior who really wins, who liberates us and captures, captures the entire creation from the power of sin. That's what we're longing for. And this is what Jesus is offering you this morning. Rather than saying to you, to you if you really try hard enough, finally he will give you the power to set your whole world in order. 
Your kids will be perfectly obedient. Your wife will do exactly what you want, even if you don't say it. Your job will go spectacularly. You'll get a raise every year. Politics will be exactly what you're hoping for, and maybe even the Lions will win. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're hoping for. That's when we think we'll finally be in a place that is glorious. Jesus says it's not that way. I'm offering you something greater where all of creation is made right again and you can have peace with the God who made you. In the end, our Savior says, not only does that bring greatest glory to Him and we recognize that glory, we also participate in it. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, that where I am, there will be my servant also. If he serves me, the Father will honor him. If your heart longs for real glory, the only place you'll find it is in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus himself has the power to make things right. And only Jesus can draw you into a kingdom where in some, even if small way, you yourself participate in that glory. When I left to go to law school, there was an older pastor who called me. If you're a history nut, you'll remember there was a point at which Calvin was going to leave Geneva and Farrell said, the Lord has called you to stay. You'd be disobeying the Lord. This older pastor called me in a Farrell moment, only I wasn't Calvin, so I didn't listen. And he said to me, I believe that you're going to law school for the wrong reason. I said, well, I have watched the way that things work in our world, and I want to be in a place of great influence. I want to bring real change. I'm frustrated with the way the world is. This man, much to his credit, listened, and then he said, Jeff, for all of your passion, you're seeking fool's gold. You won't find the power that brings the change we need ultimately in a courtroom or in a legislature. You're looking for real power that brings change ultimately. You will only find that where? In Jesus. So sometimes people who know my past will ask me, are you happy being a pastor? <laughs> Truth be told, not at every moment. <laughs> but many of them, especially on Sundays, especially in a text like this, where I have the incomparable joy of telling you that Jesus has real power that will transform you and the world in which you live. And so I can tell you the resounding answer is yes, I love being a pastor, not only because I enjoy relationship with you, but also because I can see the nature of the kingdom of Christ. And I can tell you that in a world in which you're told all kinds of things many, many times that are the opposite of that, I have the joy of telling you the truth. And the truth is simply this. We want power often. We're told we need power. And what Jesus brings is glory. Glory to himself and also glory for us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're very grateful this morning for your word. The digger we deep, the greater the riches. And I pray for each person who's heard this, I pray for my own heart. Instead of falling into the trap of thinking if only things happened in the way I wanted, everything would be made right. 
Instead, we can think to ourselves, I can serve my King Jesus. And through his death and me dying to myself and seeking his way, and Christ in his mercy welcoming me into that kingdom, I can participate in something that is far more glorious than I could ever imagine. We're deeply grateful for that, Lord, that you do not remove our humanity. Instead, the nature of your kingdom is you seek to restore it in perfection. And so we give praise to you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.